0: Welcome back, folks. Today's episode is for you if you're interested in diabetes, if you're interested in blood sugar control, if you're interested in the relationship between these things and obesity, And most importantly, if you're interested in learning about how all of these things can be solved, my guest today is an amazing guy. His name is Dr. Frank Tortorice, and he is a board-certified internist. He's also a functional medicine doctor, and he is also working on a book with a previous guest here, Joel Green. Joel Green published the book, The Immunity Code, uh, about a year or two ago, and it is an, inc- if you haven't read this book, you need to read it. It's amazing. But Frank is, Dr. Tortorice is now joint forces with Joel, and they are publishing a next edition of the Immunity Code and Obesity. And Dr. Tortorice likes, really mm-hmm. goes deep into this whole concept of diabetes, This whole idea of how blood sugar dysregulation, Diabetes and obesity are intrinsically linked, and how caught early, and sometimes not even early, but definitely how caught early, people can be pulled back from the brink and put on a path towards better health and longevity, which at the end of the day is what we're all about. Yes. So, Dr. Torturiche is. Well, he's a great guy. I actually had the pleasure of meeting him in Vegas when I was presenting at the Peptide World Congress. He is one of these heart-centered docs that truly cares about his patients and their outcome, and truly is there to walk with his patients and help them to reclaim their health, get off their meds, and all do this all under the supervision and watchful eye of a board-certified doc. So- I hope you enjoy this episode. If you're looking to reach out to Dr. Tortorice, you can find him through his website, which is diabetesitydoc.com. Uh, the links will be in the show notes. And of course, remember that all of the information here is for just that information purposes only before you start anything new, before you start a new supplement or new practice, whatever it is, make sure that you check with your own health practitioner or doctor first, or if you're looking for a doctor and you're dealing with some of the issues we're talking about today, You might just want to reach out to Dr. Tortorice. Please make sure that you leave me your comments and send me your questions. I always love hearing from you guys. If you're looking to connect with me, you can do so through my website, which is natnidham.com, or you can connect with me on Facebook in the Optimizing Superhuman Performance Group. We're going to hit 10,000 this year, guys, so be part of the tribe come on out. It's a really vibrant community. And um, we talk about a lot of stuff. We talk about peptides, but we talk about other thing topics like the one we're talking about today as well. Um, and if you would get value from this episode, please make sure to leave us a review and to share it out with your family, your friends, and anybody else who you feel would get value from it. So thank you so much for being here. I appreciate you guys and enjoy the episode. Hey folks, before we launch into the episode, just one thing. We have a sponsor, drinkhrw.com. This sponsor is all about the magic of molecular hydrogen. And they make the most incredible molecular hydrogen products. They make molecular hydrogen tablets that you can easily just drop into your water every morning as you start your day. They actually even have flavored ones in raspberry flavor, if that's your jam. I like mine uh, plain with a squeeze of lemon, but I also love the raspberry. They even have tablets that you can drop into your bathtub to soak, to get a whole body treatment of molecular hydrogen and tablets you can drop into a bowl of water and apply to your face. And so you might be sitting there wondering, so big deal, why would I drink hydrogen? I mean, hydrogen is the smallest molecule on the periodic table, who cares about hydrogen? Well, let me tell you, you care about hydrogen. A lot about what we talk about in this podcast is about health span and lifespan. It's about aging well. It's about longevity. It's about managing your body system so that you can look, feel, and perform your best. And molecular hydrogen delivers on these points like nothing else does. Think about this. Molecular hydrogen actually combats oxidative stress as well as supporting a healthy inflammatory response. Now we know that inflammation is at the root of virtually every major disease out there. We also know that it makes us basically age faster. So I would qualify molecular hydrogen as a preventative aging supplement, and it is one of the easiest, healthiest, best out there with zero negative side effects. It indirectly mitigates the damages of those three issues that ultimately lead the way in virtually any disease state and fundamentally are the driving forces in why we age. We're talking imbalances in oxidative stress, in inflammation, and as well as increased insulin resistance. So you don't really have to take my word for it, guys. You can go to the drinkhrw.com website, and I'm going to tell you that it is one of the most incredible repositories of research and articles all about molecular hydrogen. And you know what I love about this company is they don't just run around telling you how great molecular hydrogen is. They don't just cherry pick the best research articles. They're full-on, flat-out, pretty honest about this article, this clinical trial. Well, it didn't show us much yet. Here are the flaws in it, or here's what we think. It's an incredible resource, but I can tell you that... Whatever it is that you're dealing with, there's probably a clinical trial going on somewhere looking at whether or not molecular hydrogen can be helpful. And I will tell you that in my practice, I've seen it be helpful to all kinds of people. People who are suffering from joint pain, because molecular hydrogen is able to target inflammation, because it's able to support a healthy inflammatory response in the body. And it also promotes antioxidant and oxidative balance. You guys, you don't want to just be taking antioxidants by the handful. You want something on board that's going to help to keep you in balance and to not too high, not too low, just keep you in that Goldilocks state. So, like I said, I have clients who were blown away about how effective this molecular hydrogen, taking it every day, sometimes soaking an injured joint in molecular hydrogen water, what a difference it made in their mobility and in their ability to recover from their injuries and even also, of course, from workouts. So you're going to be hearing me talk a lot more about molecular hydrogen in the future. This is just the tip of the iceberg. I encourage you to go to drinkhrw.com forward slash superhuman. And you can use promo code longevity10, and that will get you 10% off everything that you purchase. And you can try molecular hydrogen for yourself. And by all means, reach out to me and let me know how you liked your molecular hydrogen experience. And by all means as well, please, please, please check out their website. It is one of the most incredible resources that I've seen for molecular hydrogen research. So thanks for being here today, guys. Enjoy the episode. Hey folks, just a little bit of housekeeping before we launch into the episode. Please remember that all of the information provided in these podcasts is for information purposes only. We are never offering treatments, cures, whatever, for any kind of disease or medical condition. Anything you hear about here is going to be intriguing. There's some research around it, but make sure that you check with your medical provider before you go off and do any of this stuff for yourself. All right. So enjoy the episode. And also, if you're looking to connect with me for any reason, with your comments, questions, whatever it may be, you can reach me through my website, which is at Nidham.com, or you can find me on Facebook in the Optimizing Superhuman Performance group, or on MeWe in the Biohacking Superhuman Performance group. And of course, you can also follow me on Instagram, which is at Natalie Nidham. Natalie is with an H between the T and the A, the second A. So thank you so much for being here. Appreciate you guys. Enjoy the episode. Good evening and welcome to the show, Dr. Frank tortoriche It is such a pleasure to meet you in person
1: thank you for inviting me a pleasure to be here
0: yeah well in person being as close to in person as we can get these days yeah that's correct so this has been a long time coming i mean i think we started talking what was it in the spring or something um and we were introduced by the wonderful joel green so i'm very grateful to him for this introduction because i think this is going to be well i know this is going to be such a great podcast and is going to resonate with so many people so why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and what, what brought, you know, you, my guess is you started in conventional medicine and uh, moved into a space, which is very not in line with what conventional medicine story is for your, the condition you're dealing with. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that journey?
1: Yes. Thank you. So, so yes, uh, um, my path took me to, to Rome Italy to get a medical degree and uh, Uh, I learned a lot of things about Italian culture and about medicine, and uh, it was quite a difficult um, uh, task uh, studying in Italian, although I'm Italian in the background, Sicilian. uh, Learning medical uh, terminology and everything, as well as speaking, was not the easiest thing for me. So that was really a a great uh, adventure and challenge, and I'm forever forever thankful for that. Uh, Why, why
0: Why did you decide to do that?
1: So, so my undergraduate was philosophy, psycho- uh, psychology. So I didn't have a lot of uh, background in in uh, advanced biology. And the thought was, if I would spend another year getting some additional courses, my application would be more in line back back then. in, in the late seventies, uh, they were really going heavily on on traditional science background. Mm. And I didn't want to do medicine per se for for being a researcher. I kind of like the humanistic uh, side of it. And I love my uh, philosophy and and uh, psychology courses. So um, I didn't want to wait another year. And then uh, a spot opened up for me uh, in Rome, Italy. And, you know, again, being of Italian heritage, I said, I could wait a year with no guarantees, or I could go back home to to Italy, see what it's like there. And uh, I had a friend who said, oh, it's all not that hard. (laughs) So. (laughs) Yeah, Never you would have told me when I got there. Yeah. 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 So he, he actually was, uh, he was my, my senior classman and he really helped me out a lot. Uh, Bob Ferguson, if you're listening now, he was a great guy, but, um, it was, it was quite a bit more difficult than I thought, but I think it was a great challenge. And, uh, actually, uh, I'm the, the doctor for the Italian consulate in San Francisco. So things come around, you know, 360 degrees and, I guess if I never had the Italian background, I, I would have not gotten that position at the consulate. So uh, things work out in the end. Uh, Italy's and, and Europe in general, as you, as you know, is, is quite a bit uh, sophisticated. Uh, we in America are sophisticated, but also in Europe. So I got turned on to a lot of things about diet and exercise and different ways of doing things that weren't necessarily the way we do things here in America. So um, that sparked my interest, and then when I, I graduated, and I went back uh, to do my residency in internal medicine and pediatrics. Uh, it was it was pretty much the standard uh, allopathic way of doing things: find a symptom, treat a symptom. If it's too high, make it lower. If it's too low, make it make it wow. higher. If it's too wet, make it drier. If it's too dry, make it wetter. So, yeah. <laughs> so, so you know, I did that for a while, and then what would happen when I came back to San Francisco uh, uh, to start my uh, my private practice, uh, I, I was with a group, uh, you know, you would see patients from time to time and you just couldn't get these patients better. You get some of the patients better, but some of the patients you could not get better. And then, uh, I went to my first functional medicine, uh, lecture, uh, with, uh, you know, the precursor of what would be the Institute for functional medicine with Jeff bland and people like that. And I fell in love with that. And one thing led to another, and uh, now I was the first doctor certified in functional medicine by the Institute for Functional Medicine here in Burlingame, which is right outside San Francisco near the airport. So uh, I've done a number of years of that. And I just, it just felt intuitive and it was more with root cause resolution. It's the biggest secret yeah. out there is functional medicine. So uh, thank you for allowing me to speak about that. But I think for chronic illnesses, it's, it's it really gives us another tool in our, our toolbox. And I think- uh, yeah, yes, sometimes the regular medicine or the, the traditional medicine is enough, but a lot of times it's not, especially for chronic illnesses. And sure. being able to, to go in and utilize these other, uh, other knowledge that I have really helps me a lot. And, and patients come in and they say, I've been frustrated. I've seen doctors for 20 years. Nobody's asked me these questions. And uh, they seem to be going at the root cause. So medicine is changing as we speak.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think I, and I do think that I think often with guests, we, we lament the state of medicine, but I do believe that it is shifting. I think that there's so much more awareness and conventional doctors, a lot of them are starting to wonder and ask questions and think about, try to think about things a little bit differently. So breaking, you know, those of you guys who broke out of that mold sooner are, you know, you're kind of uh, mavericks in that, right? So you're leading the way for everybody else. So, so you you have a specialty in the whole diabet type 2 diabetes and obesity or at least that's the topic that we're really going to ex- dig into today. And again, this is an area that is I'll give you an example. I was on the phone with my mom yesterday who has, you know, she's got type 2 diabetes that's controlled with medication, not insulin. And her blood sugar her doctor's like, "Oh, your blood sugar's low, so why don't you start drinking some Gatorade?" <laughs> And, I'm staring, and, and her electrolytes are off. And I'm like, well, wait, why would he tell you to drink sugar instead of saying, oh, well, what are you doing that's bringing down your sugar? Maybe we should yeah. think about reducing your medication. Exactly. And I like I find that astounding. <laughs> do you have any insight? <laughs> why would
1: do yeah, that? I mean, the same thing <laughs> happened to me is my, my mom is a type two diabetic. And then she transitioned to getting insulin and, and, and the same thing happened with her. She, she went on a better diet. She lost some weight and they said, well, your blood sugars are too low. You need to take ice cream or something to raise them back up. So it's right? just a convention. Yeah. That's just a conventional way they do things. And again, uh, as we know, when you're upregulated for inflammatory markers it doesn't have a long, a good long-term prognosis. So uh, because uh, with family members with diabetes uh, or insulin resistance, I am uh, very interested in that, and uh, we really see that a lot in our practice here mm-hmm. in, in, in San Francisco. So, we started to to look in a more in-depth dive at, at what is diabetes and pre-diabetes. And I mean, there's you know some people think that it's, uh, 25% of all Americans have uh, insulin resistance or pre-diabetes. So, if you look at the studies, the initial studies were based on a fasting blood sugar of 110. There was about 19 million uh, of us who had uh, pre-diabetes. But then they decided to take a fasting blood sugar of 100, and it went up to 34 million. So these are people that did not have a diagnosis of diabetes, but had impaired glucose tolerance or impaired fasting glucose. But if you look from a functional medicine standpoint, we want our fasting blood sugars between, be between 75 and 85. Mm-hmm. And we base it on, on better outcome data. So at 100, yeah, you you don't have diabetes yet, but you, you're still at higher risk of having complications down the line. When you get your blood sugar fasting between 75 and 85, that's the sweet spot where you tend to have less complications. So if you figure it went from 10 points from 110 to 100, and it went from 19 million to 34 million, you yeah. do the math when you think it'd be at 85. So So this, yeah. is, this is really a, a catastrophe. And again, I'm one of the a few uh, people out there. there, there is other people that have said this, so it's not my original thought, but uh, insulin resistance is at the base of all these chronic diseases. So heart disease, cancer, COVID, long hauler syndrome, uh, obesity, sleep apnea, type three diabetes, better known as Alzheimer's. Yeah. So, so by reducing this as an initiating factor, then down the line, you're going to save a lot of money and a lot of uh, morbidity and mortality because a lot of these illnesses that we believe are, are uh, you know, like heart disease. Well, heart disease in, in the good majority of cases is brought on by some type of dysregulation of insulin.
0: Yeah. So what do you think is driving this whole dysregulation of insulin? Like, I mean, it's clearly it's rampant. You know, it's, it's everywhere that we see. What are you attributing this insulin resistance Issue is it just eating sugar? Like I think it might be more than just eating too much sugar. But why don't you tell us a little bit about your thoughts on that?
1: Right. Yeah, I agree with you. One of it is eating sugar, but that's not the whole. That's no. not The whole story. So, so things such as sleep apnea and not getting into stage four sleep. So if your body doesn't have a time to repair. You have poor sleep, and that creates an inflammatory uh, environment, and, and the body tries to regulate by using cortisol and other hormones. And then you have uh, high glucose. That's number one. Number two is, uh, you know, obesity, you know, obesity creates a very inflammatory state. And with that, the body gets type two diabetes, which is known as uh, insulin resistance. You have enough insulin, but it doesn't get into the cell. It doesn't signal properly at at the cell membrane. So that's uh, another issue. So uh, the, the food, is devoid of uh, the proper nutrients and micronutrients. Lack of exercise—we're not getting enough exercise. So exercise stimulates uh, insulin sensitivity. Our, our kids now play with, uh, uh, you know, uh, iPads and, and, and Game Boy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, way back when kids would go to the, the park or play with their other siblings and classmates. Now it's it's much less frequent. So we're seeing even type two diabetes in, in young children. So uh, this never happened years ago. So it's definitely uh, diet, lifestyle, stress. Uh, you know, there's also things such as uh, heavy metals and, and uh, other types of, of issues such as mold that can create an inflammatory state. And the body sometimes will compensate with, with insulin, not, not in every instance. But, uh, you know, if, if you upregulate your inflammatory markers, then you're going to get more uh, blood sugar dysregulation.
0: So what I'm hearing you say, I think, is that it's the increase in inflammation, the increased in inflammation state is leading, in some cases, is leading people to become insulin resistant, like these part, inflammatory yeah. states. So then, yeah, so then that would also feed into the story on the poor quality fats, for example, like damaged fats. Uh, causing sure. inflammation and then yeah, bouncing yeah. back coming back as insulin showing up as insulin resistance maybe
1: absolutely yeah especially overconsumption of these fats will lead to to diabetes and insulin uh, insulin resistance so uh, we're finding that uh, yes there's healthy fats but most of the uh, the, the fats in the, in the common sad diet uh, the standard american diet are not are not necessarily uh, healthy fats. They're damaged fats, and uh, some people believe that it's not so much the sugar, but the uh, the uh, the rampant use of commercial vegetable oils mm-hmm. has created the diabetes. So uh, we never used to have all these processed uh, oils uh, up until the turn of last century. And then after that became available, then people didn't use things such as lard or or, or butter. They use more of these commercial. Uh, uh, oils and there's a lot of damaging uh, consequences because of that.
0: Yeah. So, what would you say the best fats are for people to use
1: in your so, mind? So, again, uh, it depends. If if somebody's a vegetarian, then obviously they're going to not use any of the animal fats. But uh, things such as olive oil are not bad. But again, it, it, you can't ke- heat that at a you know tremendously high temperature. Avocado mm-hmm. oil. Some people like coconut oil, though it does impart a flavor. Uh, and then there's things such as ghee. But again, you know, it depends. So there's, uh, there's probably about a half a dozen fats that are commonly used uh, that uh, people tend to believe are, are a little bit better, safer. I mentioned uh, some of them, I'm sure I forgot one or two of them. But yeah,
0: uh, uh, yeah well, the th- those are fat. ones we commonly hear. So then are how are you how do you feel about some of these very high fat diets? Do you there's some people will say that over time they, that might drive that may lead to insulin resistance. I know that Joel in his book, yeah. The Immunity Code, which you're very familiar with. I mean, he's no big fan of the continuous high fat diet. And I, you know, i reading his okay. book is just it's it's so interesting because it's almost like he's this voice of reason coming in going, guys, you don't need to do anything that extreme. You need to fix your body so that you can deal with kind of less maniacal approach to diet as it were. (laughs) What are your thoughts on that? Like in your mind, what would be a, a better diet for most people? And how much of it do you think is influenced by genetics? Like how personalized does it have to be?
1: Well, I, I think genetics plays a portion uh, in, in everything we do. I think uh, uh, people have a genetic uh, diversity for a reason. Yeah. And uh, uh, I was with Joel uh, two weeks ago down in L.A. It was really wonderful. And uh, a real treat was seeing Joel cook a meal for you. So that that was really nice. And uh, he's actually quite a good cook, and he's, he's uh, an amazing thinker. I think part of his strength is the fact that he didn't come from, let's say, a medical or a yeah. – uh, a university background. He just has this God-gifted ability to read quite a bit of material, understand it, and synthesize it. And 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 Joel is very practical. He says, well, uh, unbalanced diets in the long run don't work, whether it be uh, high fat, high carb, high protein. So we go uh, and talk about that at length. And, and even besides what uh, Joel uh, espouses, uh, there's, uh, you know, there, there's plenty of scientific studies showing that uh, a, a high protein or, or, or uh, a super high fat diet in the long run will uh, cause an insulin uh, resistance to occur. So, uh, Joel believes in doing things for a small amount of time as, as, as well uh, as I do as well. I don't think there's necessarily good data on, on doing an imbalanced diet at a prolonged length of time. So, I think up to a year is what I read in some of the studies. You can go up to a year with some of these imbalanced diets, but after that, you are got to get into trouble. So uh, Joel has other mechanisms, as you know from from the book, um, mm-hmm. the Immunity Code, and we we've talked about those uh, at length uh, when we see each other. So you're you're right about that. I, I think I, I think that there's no one size fits all. I mean, taking care of people for for 20 years. Uh, you can be humbled quite easily because the same recipe does not work for everybody. And uh, if it works, it doesn't work forever. So you really have to, you really have to take in mind that functional medicine is about treating the patient. Uh, Allopathic medicine is about treating the disease. So when you're treating the patient, you have an N of one. So you, you really have to look at this patient, this person in front of you very carefully and try to, Uh, maximize their genetic potential and try to give them a very individualized, customized approach.
0: Yeah, I love that. What are some of the... So you were talking about how important early detection is, because obviously it's a whole lot easier easier to pull someone off the cliff if they're not already hanging off by a fingernail. Like, let's face it, you know, it's if they're standing, if they're just standing there looking over the edge it's easier. If they are 10 steps back, it's still easy. It's even easier then. But so what are the markers that you're looking for and how early are you seeing them in people?
1: So, so conventional wisdom tells us that once people start having insulin resistance, whatever that means, you know, I think there's various studies and use various numbers, but it can be seven to 10 years. And it really depends on if the person does absolutely nothing, maybe seven to 10 years, do they have a diagnosis of diabetes what we what we found in our clinic and what we see is I I check very very early. Everybody walks in the door, even twenty year olds. You'll be surprised, and not everybody has to be. Uh, you know, is, uh, have weight issues. Yeah. Uh, cer- certain people are, are 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 thin fat, so they they don't have a tremendous body mass, but uh, they don't have a tremendous muscle mass either. So you really have to again, uh, functional medicine is is about the individual. So when I first started, they said, well, just get a uh, you know comprehensive or a, a basic metabolic panel, and look look at the, the the fasting glucose. But again, that's that's not always uh, the easiest marker to get. It is somewhat better than A1C. So the hemoglobin A1C uh, at 6.5 was considered uh, the lowest uh, determinant of having diabetes from 5.7 to 6.4 would be pre-diabetes. So um, uh, you can get that for a person or you can get a fasting insulin. Uh, what I like to do with a fasting insulin is, uh, sorry, fasting glucose. I like to get a fasting insulin with the fasting glucose. And the reason being is uh, it's, it's kind of like a loan. You can have a loan for $20,000, but if I'm paying 2% interest and you're paying 22% interest, it's not the same loan and the same thing. Somebody could have a, a, a fasting blood sugar of 90, which is slightly high. And their insulin could be, uh, you know, five or or three or something like that. Somebody else could be like twenty-seven. So you know that they're well along the way to getting a diabetes since they, they have to secrete much more insulin because the insulin they have is not working. So that's right. one of the tests. And then for for the ladies out there, uh, sometimes when they become pregnant and their their gynecologist or obstetricians looking at them, they will do a, a glucose tolerance test. Well. You don't necessarily have to be pregnant to get a 75-gram insulin uh, uh, or glucose tolerance test. The only spin I put on it is I check insulin at the same points I check, uh, I check glucose, blood sugar, and then I get a better – so it's zero, one hour, two hours, and three hours. So, so that's another way to do it. But again, that's more expensive, and nobody wants to sit in a lab for three hours so there's basic yeah. things you can do like that
0: and so then when the insulin just isn't there so now you're in a situation is that just a type 1 diabetes situation or can you be type 2 diabetic and have too low in, like basically the reverse yeah. now the pancreas is is kind of over this overproduction of insulin i don't know if it gets exhausted or the the islet cells get damaged like whatever it is that happens and it, right. it no longer keep up its insulin production. Do you see that, or is that the end stage of type two diabetes, where people are just perched on the edge of total pancreatic failure?
1: Yeah. So, so that's a great question because you really don't know. Uh, we have a number of patients, and I look and say, "Why is your insulin only 3? and and something doesn't something doesn't uh, necessarily make sense. So you have to really look at the at the person. Uh, they say traditionally that you have seventy five to eighty. 80% uh, loss of the beta cells of the pancreas before you get into diabetes, but that's not always the case. What well, we have seen certain people who don't produce a lot of insulin yet uh, have regular blood sugars depending on what they eat. So uh, I don't know if you can tell just by just uh, alone when you see low insulin, what, it, you know, what it is, unless the patient's uh, known as a diabetic, then if they have low right. insulin and you know, you can get some, uh, uh, you know, you can get some uh, markers such as GAD-65 or something, which is a specific marker that checks for uh, autoimmune or antibodies against uh, the receptors there. But in, in a lot of cases, uh, you know, you really can't stay for sure without doing further testing. So if I know somebody's a diabetic and they're uh, A1C, again, we said 6.5 is a the, is the starting point for a diabetic. They're a one C is seven or eight, and remember, it's a logarithmic scale. Uh, scale. So seven or eight is a lot higher than yeah. six, six and a half, right? So, so, and then they don't have insulin. Uh, then, and you can kind of put two and two together. Uh, like I said, I mentioned in the beginning. My mother is a type two diabetic, but through having it many years, she no longer produces adequate insulin, so now she takes daily insulin.
0: So right. uh,
1: you can have that with uh, as uh, with the patches of time, you're going to lose. Your ability to secrete insulin and diabetics more so so a lot of them will be put on insulin and again uh, this gets the blood sugar down but is it the best way to treat uh, somebody who has diabetes or pre-diabetes we, we don't think so necessarily but again uh, because having high blood sugar and especially high insulin is very damaging we have to be careful we can't we can't tell everybody to go on a diet or intermittent fasting you really have to individualized because you'll make people sick, ill, or, 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 or worse. But let's say uh, somebody's younger and they're able to exercise and they're able to use uh, lose a few pounds. Well, they don't necessarily have to have uh, medications. All right. So th- there's the whole spectrum there.
0: Right. So you were saying with the HbA1c numbers that 6.5 is diabetes, 5.7 to 6.5 is pre-diabetes. How do you feel about those numbers? Like, do you think I'm I'm thinking I'm wondering if maybe we're waiting too long to sound the alarm. Like 5.7 yeah. to me sounds already you know yeah, with, it's a good the point. train the train the doors it's are closing left, on the yeah. train here. It hasn't quite left the station but <laughs> you know it, so, it it seems to me like we should be sounding the alarm maybe a little sooner than that. What what so, we uh, Yeah
1: no, that's a, another uh, fantastic question. So, so uh, some uh, experts out there believe that uh, having an A1C at 4.6 to 5.3 is normal. Anything above 5.3, uh, you're leading into, into questions and 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 poorer outcome. So, yes, yeah, I would say I, I see some young people at 4.6, but once you start hitting your 30s, I don't see too many people at uh, under five. But we we do see some people in their 40s and 50s that are metabolically uh, uh healthy again 80 percent of americans are not metabolically healthy but 5.2 to 5.4 would probably be where you'd want it to be no higher than that so again that was a great question and yeah. again this is based on outcome data so again yeah. even though functional medicine is, is thought to be more personalized the thing i like about it is it's it's, it's medicine it's scientific based on peer-reviewed studies not simply on uh uh you know, doctor's uh, personal belief. When I was at the Cleveland Clinic, it had opened up uh, a few years ago. And, I, and because I am a graduate of the functional medicine, so they let me go and shadow a doctor there. I was really interested. I hadn't been back to Cleveland in quite a, a few years. I, I actually did my residency in Youngstown, which is east of Cleveland, about 90 yeah. minutes or so. And I got to go to the Cleveland Clinic where they were doing the functional medicine. And I'll tell you, it was it was quite impressive. Very really? impressive. Again. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it had gone from the initially they weren't sure the the concept would work. So they put a bike behind the garage or something. And then once they <laughs> had a two year waiting list, they, they, they expanded to a hundred thousand square feet in prime, uh, you know, prime Cleveland clinic uh, territory. And uh, uh, you know, they had quite a bit more resources in my little clinic. They had a nutritionist and they had coaches and they had uh, you name it. So, so they uh, when when you would come in you'd walk through the different uh, rooms the same day you get to see a little bit of everything so uh, i was i was quite impressed to see what's going on i think a lot of uh, a lot of people are getting very good care for their chronic uh, chronic illnesses and there's uh, a lot of good stories people uh, getting off medications losing weight and getting their health back
0: yeah which is and those are the stories we want to hear right i think that So often people don't they don't connect to the fact that this is a lot of these chronic conditions, quite apart from being avoidable, can sometimes be reversed. But you do. But but people have to be willing to put a bit of effort into it and, and put some muscle in kind of thing, you know, and whatever that I mean, I see them myself in my practice and. It, it's a tough discussion to have with someone to say before you even take them on as a client, like, are you ready to step up and change the way you do things? Because if you're not, then you know the day you're ready to step through that door, I'm here for you, but there's we, yeah. you know the 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 take a pill is that's what your doctor's gonna offer your conventional doctor's gonna offer, right? the The other one is, I think it's kind of like adulting right? You're going to grow up. You're going to stop treating food, like a treat that you get seven or however many times a day. (laughs) Like you, you stop living like a toddler and you're now going to start living like a grown-up and take responsibility for your health kind of thing. But to your point, it's at certain point, it's not that simple anymore. And I want to talk about that a little bit. I want to talk about those people that come through the door and they've tried everything, like they've cleaned up their diet. They're they're trying to exercise. They're trying to sleep. Like they're trying to do all the things, and yet they are so freaking stuck. And and those people, I think we do a disservice to even putting them in the in that group of people that that aren't willing to do the work. Because these are, I sometimes see people who've been, they've tried everything. They've worked. Oh. They're working so hard, and they're not getting anywhere. So, and that's where like. What are you finding is is helping to move the needle with these guys, if anything? Well, yeah,
1: no. So, so yeah, I, I'm in total agreement. I mean, when I first started, I would take on all comers, but then uh, uh, I quickly learned that uh, you know the uh, the patient, the client must be must be ready. Yeah. Functional medicine is a partnership, so it's not a hands down uh, patriotic. uh, uh, type of thing where the doctor just says, you're going to do this. Now those days are gone. Maybe in the fifties or sixties, the doctors could order people around, but nowadays it doesn't work that way. Uh, you have to have a collaboration between the doctor, the client, the patient, whatever you call, and they have to be ready. I asked them, I said, "See, the problem I have is that since I have a functional medicine background, everybody walks in the door, whether they're being seen for conventional medicine or functional medicine, gets a functional medicine treatment because I can't unknow what I know. And I can't Absolutely. read the, <laughs> I can't read the, I can't read the blood sugar differently if you're not a functional medicine patient. But what I can do is, is meet the patient there. Are you willing to do this? Yeah. Okay. And, 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 uh, you know, I think you, you really have to look in somebody's eyes and think if it's a good fit, if it's not a good fit, then either you send them to somebody else or, or you put them on the medicine. It's, it's not as satisfactory, but Again, uh, we're here to help people one way or another, and, and we've had patients who failed and then came back to their functional medicine um, uh, uh, protocol. Again, uh, when functional medicine first started, it was pretty much for people had uh, ex, you know some type of financial means yes. nowadays with, with group visits and now with the new codes that the 2021 uh, billing codes are allowing us to see either group visits or individual visits. And it can be covered to some degree by the insurance. So we're trying to make it more accessible to, to more people. Amazing. Uh, your, yeah, your question about what do we do? Yeah, it's not only about eating. It's, there's a lot of issues. I'll tell you, I have a lot of people, they say, oh, doc, I sleep fine, don't worry about it. And then you put a sleep study on them and it's all over the map, you know? Yeah. So, so the, good news, the good news is that the, the, the little boxes for the home sleep apnea are covered by most insurances. And they're very portable. Back about 10 years ago, you'd have to go in this, you know, uh, Tony Perkins type of hotel and sleep, try to sleep. And then they say, oh, you didn't sleep very well. Yeah, I wonder why. Well, no kidding. <laughs> but, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you used to have to go to these places. And they, they would put a bed sheet on it. You know, my patients today, hey, it was horrible. I says I wanted to get out of there. So, so now you're going in your own home. And, and uh, the chips have enough data where you can do two or three days. And you can pool the data. And uh, you, you have a better uh, data set come up with your diagnosis and sleep apnea is one of the, one of the root causes of, um, of, uh, uh you know, impaired uh, glucose tolerance or prediabetes. Uh, other things is stress. We have a number of people with mood disorders
0: mm-hmm. and,
1: uh, you know, is, you know, what, what came first is it the mood disorder, or the diabetes. So, so dealing with that, you know, and then people have genetics Some people have high cholesterol and, uh, uh, but where there's not always a one-to-one correlation, a lot of times you'll see that there's impaired uh, glucose tolerance and impaired insulin secretion in these people. So, so it, it's not so easy or infections. There's in certain infections, which can lead to altered blood sugars as well. So uh, it's not what always are, easy.
0: Yeah. What kind of infections would those be where you're seeing insulin resistance?
1: So, so, so these would be chronic infections and the body's in an, an altered state, you know, when you get high cortisol, what happens? You get, you get a little bit of insulin uh, resistance because the body, right. says, okay, we got, we got fight or flight. You got this thing coming on. So I'm going to put some sugar into your muscles so that you can fight off this, this, this threat. And if people are always in a, a high uh, sympathetic state, then they can have uh, uh, high fasting glucose.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, we have a number of people like that and their A1C is fine but then you look at their, their, their insulin, it's, it's really high. So we have to work, work with stress. I mean, some, some people are eating pretty good. So, so again, uh, you know, I think part of the, part of the, the beauty of having a functional health coach and nutritionist uh, uh, allows me to have them be part of the team that works with uh, uh, the patient, answers their questions it helps them with their shopping uh, uh, when they go uh, grocery shopping Talk yeah. a little bit about exercise, and then we can just follow up. I think the days of just a doctor sitting there—those days are are largely for chronic illnesses, a thing of the past. Now you need a whole team. when yeah. you have a health coach or a a nurse or, or nutritionist or an exercise person or a meditation person, or I mean, it's 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 totally different. But again, because of the way that uh, Medicare is now uh, reimbursing doctors there's an incentive to do a group visit or to do uh, preventative care.
0: That's amazing, it's nice to see that, that moving. So let me ask you another question. What about, uh, okay, I have a couple of questions for you. What are your thoughts on continuous glucose monitors? There was, um, there was a thing that came out recently kind of lambasting the use of continuous glucose monitors. And I mean, I personally have found them pretty insightful. <laughs> At times, like it teaches people, right? It shows yeah, them it and it also helps them to I mean, and I'm giving you my bias now, but it, it shows them that, hey, you know what? Bananas for you are really not that bad. Exactly. and Bananas for yes. you are a diabetic event every time you have yeah. one. So I can I feel like we're on the same page here.
1: <laughs> no, absolutely. I was thinking about that because there was an article uh, by Peter Atia. Uh, mm-hmm. A couple of weeks ago, on the glucose monitors, and I was down with Joel, and I, I showed it to Joel, so we, we had a we had a laugh on that. And I think there's some question about the reliability of, yeah. of the of the meters. I think it's some it may not be ready for prime time yet. I, I yeah. had a glucose monitor because I wanted to try one, and again, I don't want to talk about something if I have an experience, I'm not a diabetic, but uh, I still think I, I should, you know, try these things uh anyway uh I, I was doing okay it said oh it's good for two weeks so about eight days in i saw my blood sugars go down to 60 and i said what is going on here so i couldn't figure it out and i called joel and uh, he said well i'll just try some of this and then I went down to 40 and i said i know no way so uh, you know here in the clinic we have you know the old finger stick and it was not yeah. even close i had to pull it off so that's the issue but i know as peter atias says in, in that article he says that sometimes the variance helps you out so even if it it should be 80 and your machine says 70 you have relative numbers so 90 and so he says that for a lot of people they they, like you said you eat bananas or something like that so even though your blood sugar excursions are not going to be as wide let's say as a diabetic they still give you uh you know useful data so i agree with that Yeah. yeah they're not they're not the cheapest thing but they're not getting as expensive as they have been and there's different companies uh, as long as you, you don't take them for gospel, I remember the one day I was eating sugar like nobody's business to get it back up to 75 and I couldn't do it. And I could not figure out what was going on. So, yeah, <laughs> uh, with that caveat, they may not be as accurate, but, they, you know, they're, they're, they're relatively accurate. And and for most people, you can kind of see what foods give you trouble and what foods don't, because not everybody has the same uh, markers that give um, give problems with with certain foods.
0: Yeah, no, and actually, I I do have a client who, or her CGM just about drove her around the bend, and it turned it turned <laughs> out that it was way off, and we yeah. figured it. We finally figured it out with, you know, with a keto mojo or whatever, like just no. a finger prick. And no, and exactly. the thing is, you know, like nobody wants to do that stuff, but there's these no. new devices coming out that. I don't know if you've looked at them at all, but there's one that I just posted a podcast about it uh, this week called The Lumen. Have you heard of that?
1: Uh, a lumen for blood sugar?
0: So it's not so it's not exactly for blood sugar. What it does is it measures your carbon dioxide. And okay, so, base, yeah, yeah, I have and, that.
1: You're talking about the one you blow in for 10 yeah, seconds? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I have that. I have that.
0: So it's not it's not going to give you a precise number but it it starts to give people an idea of ranges that they're in. I was just wondering like if you'd ever if you'd played with that with your clients yet. I mean it's all pretty new technology. It's not I was wondering do you use that in your practice or
1: No, I no, just I not. just got it for me uh, cuz I wanted <laughs> to see uh, That's how we so start how do you, how, yeah, how do you use that? I mean, it goes from one to five to see if you have more carbs or or fats. But I didn't know it give blood sugar, so maybe I missed no, it. No, it
0: doesn't. No, you're right. It does not. It it basically gives you a gauge of are you in full fat burning mode? Are you fat? And exactly. Carbs, yeah, that's full correct. Carb?
1: Correct. Yep. And
0: uh, and then they they have an app that tries to give you back information about what their their goal is really about building metabolic flexibility, which I actually think is something that we should all be aiming for. Right. Yeah. Um, which is part of this whole idea of trying not to go to extremes on diet, trying to move ourselves into a world world where our body can deal with a bit more carb, a bit more fat, a bit less here and there. But, but it's a process because for most of us, we've seemed to have lost that flexibility along the way somewhere.
1: Right. Yeah. I think most people can probably digest the carbs better than the fat. So Uh, Turning on the fat enzymes are a little bit uh, more of a challenge. Now, when you go into ketosis and you go on a long diet, then you're excellent at 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 doing the uh, the fat uh, absorption. But then again, there's a thought that in a number of months, if if you if you go too low on your uh, on your carbs, that you may have some difficulty bringing it back. So again, um, the studies I read was you know they used a sweet spot of around nine to twelve months. Again. I don't know anybody who's lost totally the ability to uh, digest uh, carbohydrates, <laughs> but uh, modern man really was, I mean, ancient man probably ate what, whatever was out there, you know, yeah, during the, during, during the summer. Yeah. During the summer there were, you know, there were, there was berries, there was honey from time to time there was uh, you know, there was meat if he was able to, to, you know, uh, get some and then there was, there was, you know, berries and other things, and then became the agriculture system as well. So uh, I don't think it was exactly like it is today. That's
0: true. Yeah, I think. I mean, I'm, I'm, I think with keto, you can avoid a lot of problems if you if you find a way to cycle it right. Whether you're cycling Absolutely. off one or two days a week or one week a month, like there's there's a big movement now. You know, with biohacking, women looking at women's cycles and how that affects their ability to deal with carbs and talking about how the week before a cycle, you know, when you get those carb cravings, that yep. might be the week to fulfill the there carb cravings. And then yeah. you do your fasting and your keto on the other weeks. And, and so actually that was another, another question I wanted to ask you is have you just made many distinctions between your male and female patients? Like do, like are women responding differently differently? than men and pre and, you know, the problem with women, of course, is, you know, <laughs> we're yeah. many, we're many different women rolled into one and particularly yeah. like pre-menopause, exactly. you've got, you know, these, these hormonal fluctuations, but then post-menopause absolutely. you become this whole other person. Yeah. And so are you finding you're having to adapt what you do yeah, to women absolutely. specifically?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I think Postmenopausal women, you can kind of—I won't say 100% lump them with guys, but it's probably closer when they're when they're having periods. Then all bets are off. You really gotta be careful uh, to handle that properly. So, yeah, it's totally different. It's a totally different. Uh, <clears throat> it's a totally different animal. A, t- a totally different situation, uh, and uh, um, I, usually I try to get a lot more data. Because mm-hmm. uh, otherwise you're going to be, uh, you're not going to be successful. Uh, when you were talking about the, uh, the fasting, I think I was reading the book and was saying that, well, you don't really need to do that much fasting. If you do it twice a month or something, it, it, you know, it, or, or it said five times, uh, you do a intermittent fasting five days, uh, once a month or once every other month, it, it was not, you know, cycling on and off for a long time. You still get the benefit. And I know that's a prolon diet which is a vegetarian food mimicking diet they say do it once a month uh you, uh you know for what is it five days so uh there were some studies on that as well at a UCLA so uh i know i kind of switched the topic a bit but no, going okay. back to the, yeah going back to the women yeah you're 100% right i think i think women's hormones are different for a reason and if you don't recognize that you're going to be uh you're not going to be successful and and your patients or clients will be frustrated. So you really have to, you really have to do a good job with that.
0: Yeah. Are, do you find now that you brought up fasting? Do you find fasting is helpful in reestablishing insulin resistance in your patients?
1: Yeah, it can. It can. It depends yeah. where you are on the continuum. But if you're early on and you add in some intermittent fasting, you'd be surprised. You you, you can get back a lot uh, a lot of sensitivity. Now, if they're all the way down you know, for 30 years, been a diabetic, probably not going to be as successful, but younger people who do intermittent fasting, or even, even people who don't have diabetes, intermittent fast, this is really yeah. good. So, so I, I would say everybody should try to try to uh, do that. And the simplest way you can do it is let, let's say, uh, you know, you work Monday through Friday, regular hours, when you get up on Saturday morning, no reason you have to have a breakfast at eight o'clock, maybe you can go to noon or two o'clock or, some people are metabolically more flexible. It can go to five o'clock or the next day, you know, but certainly you should be able to get 15 hours in a, and depending on what studies you read, the sweet spot is anywhere from 12 hours to 18 or 19. Some mm-hmm. studies show more or less, but certainly from 12 to 15 to 18, there is some, uh, there is some benefit you get with each of the different uh, time periods.
0: Yeah, for sure. I, you know what? I had a client once, um, I I don't know. I think he must have been like a 48-year-old, 40, like kind of near 50-year-old guy, a business guy. And he started one day a week. Like he would eat dinner on Sunday night and he wouldn't eat again until Monday night dinner.
1: Yeah, yeah. And
0: I think in the space of three months, all of his metrics improved. It yeah. was actually shocking. Yeah, just... <laughs> he himself, like he dropped all this. And, you know, guys... We love you. And women, this is women's eternal frustration. As a guy will do that, drop 20 pounds, all of his blood metrics get better. And then for a woman, it works differently. But in his case, it was it was he was like giddy. (laughs) When I spoke to him, he was like, oh, my God, you're never going to believe. And this is so easy. (laughs) It is. And and to your point, actually, I think he was able to do this at a time before he was metabolically broken. Like the wheels were kind of starting, you know, the bolts were loosening on the wheels, as it were, like there were signs. Yeah. And I think this speaks a lot to what you were talking about is detected early because it's so much easier to fix absolutely, at the beginning yeah. than it is when somebody's been down that road for 10 or 20 years. And there's been damage done to the endocrine organs, even like blood vessels or whatever the case may be. And you're trying to undo a lot of harm which is just going to take time.
1: Yeah, you may not be as successful. So again, when people come here, I mean, my my clinic is called the Barrier Wellness Center. So I, I, I don't want disease associated with my clinic. I want it to be a wellness center. And That's our goal. Do we always succeed? Probably not 100%, but we certainly try. And we tell people this is a wellness center. So um, you get people assigned to us from an insurance they have no idea. Then you get some people, we say wow i was looking for that i I, ne- I didn't know you were that type of doctor so yeah. uh, it's exciting you know and then again the the functional testing usually isn't covered by insurance so you really have to try to work with people i try to get all the labs that are covered by their insurance first because i know how to read the labs sometimes i can arrive at a diagnosis other times they do need more functional testing whether it be stool saliva urine hormonal and we we you know we offer it kind of like you know at a restaurant i mean People, some people buy the bottle, hundred dollar bottle of champagne. Other people just get a glass of water, right? But, but you want to meet the client where they are and it, let them know that's available when they want it, if they want it. So, um, you know, we're very, very fortunate to be able to help so many people, and it, it's, it's, it's our blessing that we 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 give our best to each each individual to try to really help them with their issues. They come to us for a reason. They're frustrated. We, we have that additional training and we want to put it to best use so um, it's it's exciting to and, and it's a blessing to be able to do what you really enjoy. I know you you love doing what you're doing and, and so do I so you, can, you know it's it's really it's really uh, it's really fun when you can do something that you're passionate about.
0: Yeah, it's a total gift. Okay, there was another, like we're gonna talk about a couple more things. Um, and there was one thing that caught my attention on um, some of the stuff that you sent me was something about COVID long haulers. And um, so I was curious to know in this conversation of insulin resistance and diabetes, and I think I've heard that in some people who had COVID, they're, they get stuck for the long, well, for a period of time, anywhere with blood sugar issues and whatnot. So I was wondering if you wanted to touch on that before we get too far, too much. Well, further. yeah,
1: unfortunately, it's a, it's a, it's it's a big deal. I've had people come up to me and say, "Doc, uh, I mean, are, are, do you realize what's happening? Is over a million people that have the long hauler syndrome? What are you doing about it?" And you know, we weren't obviously prepared when 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 the the COVID first hit, like. Most practices or probably all practices, we were totally unprepared. And then once uh, the first few months went by and then uh, towards the end of uh, last year, we started hearing, this, hearing about this new uh, symptom, uh, symptomology, which is the, the long hauler syndrome. And what do we do with that? So um, I think it's a moving picture. I've been listening to different functional medicine doctors. And if you have diabetes, obesity, hypertension, uh, and some other, uh, uh, other chronic conditions, you are more at a loss or more, more likely to get the, what's called the long hauler syndrome. And there's all sorts of sim- symptoms with that. It would take, uh, it would take uh, quite a bit of time to go through all the different uh, problems. But we still have a couple of patients that don't smell right. Their taste is not right. They have a chronic yeah. cough. They have fibrosis of the lungs. I've had patients that were intubated and almost didn't make it. And uh, some of them are not doing so great. And, you know, uh, we really want to help them. So, so yeah, the diabetes can make it worse because it's an, it's an inflammatory state and, and the treatment is really individualized because there's so many different symptoms and there's so many different causes. So um, I was reaching out to my patients just to let them know that we can work with them. It, it is a background of functional medicine since, is based on functions that are deficit, whether it be absorption, digestion, assimilation. Uh, so, so the different, different functional uh, attributes that are somewhat involved and then the brain. So obviously if you can't taste or smell, that's part of your brain. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, so we got to work in, in, and trying to uh, get the brain back to function where it is, uh, where it's at. I mean, patients say, you know, I got this foggy brain doc. I can't, can't hear like I can't can't think like I used to and we have a couple of patients that are really quite you know they were intubated and if you look at the studies people who were intubated or had respiratory failure really have a hard time afterwards and and uh you know we're, we're struggling with uh, a few of those patients and uh, you know you can start out with just getting them to walk we couldn't you know when they first came out they couldn't even walk in the, in the room and now we have them walking in in some of the parks and then we try to get them a little bit further initially it would cough with even the slightest amount of exercise even with medications so and now they are getting somewhat of their uh, reserve back but it's it's a far cry from being a baseline so wow uh, just for, for people to know that there is a functional approach or approaches there's been some studies the the government the actual the medicare has, has put uh before it was like in less than one percent now they put in uh some some funding to help with the post uh the uh, you know the long hauler syndrome since there's uh what a hundred million people I, I know there's, there's a tremendous number of people that have some involvement with that hmm. and you can be asymptomatic. There's a young person who's asymptomatic and now he can't play sports anymore. So, so he's uh, not uh, asymptomatic.
0: He's yeah there yeah there's a symptom. yeah he had
1: COVID he without being having to be intubated or going oh, to the I hospital. See. But yeah, unfortunately, yeah, yeah. you know with the you know with the cytokines and, and some of the issues that created some inflammatory uh, issues with the lungs and, and like that, some of these persons are not back to baseline yet. So that's that's interesting. That's uh, some, yeah, that's a story that's still being written as we speak.
0: Still evolving, yeah, so I see. So what you were saying then is that, you know, you're going into, it, I mean, it's kind of what we've been saying for the last however many months is going into COVID with any of these chronic diseases at play is gonna put you at a much higher risk of of worse outcome yeah and i guess you know i guess what's interesting and what would be an interesting thing to to figure out is going back to what you were saying originally which is if we move the bar down and said that pre-diabetes really is at a much earlier stage than what we're recognizing it might actually explain a lot of these people who are considered to be healthy um, but who are developing these crazy COVID syndromes and and long hauler, maybe they, and, and I've always believed this. I'm like, yeah, people may look like they're healthy and they may not be on 20 medications, but that doesn't mean they're metabolically healthy. And what I think, you know, I wonder if the question we should be asking is how metabolically healthy do you need to be to withstand that kind of an infection and come out of it unscathed? And it may just be that there's way fewer people in that category than we would have thought.
1: Again, uh, the estimates are that three quarters of Americans, some people say over 80% are not metabolically healthy. So depending on who you're looking at for your data, it's 80%. That's less than 20%. So uh, that means that if 10 people walk in my office, maybe, maybe two of them, you know, uh, one to two of them have are metabolically, uh, uh, flexible or have metabolically, uh, uh, systems that can handle, uh, the, uh, the different, the different inflammatory, uh, insults. So that's, that's not a lot. That's yeah. uh, so we, if we wait until they have a, a diagnosed illness, again, I think when we started this, this, uh, discussion, we, we said that, uh, there's over a hundred million that's based on a blood sugar of a hundred and none of the functional doctors believes a fasting blood sugar of a hundred is, is healthy. So, uh, it's, it's quite a bit worse. So, uh, we're going to try to help as many people as we can. So we just give them the numbers and then, uh, we hope that they'll, uh, they'll want to take care of themselves.
0: Yeah, no, that's awesome. I love that. And I mean, it's really, it's about lowering the bar, right? So
1: yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
0: And, or raising it yeah. but by lowering it. <laughs>
1: Yeah, lowering the bar for, for, for blood sugar to be abnormal, but raising it to get people to step up and, and, and take responsibility for their own health, but make it easy for them. The, the yeah. problem we have is if somebody comes, like some of my blood tests are 14 pages and that's just from Quest. So wow. again, if I overwhelm people, then I'm not doing my job. My job is, is to collaborate with each person who walks in the door and get them to move forward in a way where they don't feel overwhelmed. Yeah, I mean, if somebody throws their hands up and says, "This is too much, doc," just give me the medicine, then I, then I've failed that person, and that's why mm-hmm. the team approach is so important. Because I've got people that got so many abnormalities on their lab tests, and they said, "Well, doc, I never heard about that. Nobody's ever told me that about, told me that before." So you really have to look at the person you have in front of you. If you overwhelm them, or they start they 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 start saying like, "This is hopeless," then you've lost them. You really. It's really important that they realize that, yeah, the labs can look not optimal, but we can get you through this. So yeah, it's 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 really a personalized approach to making sure that you're there for the person and, you know, you don't want to reduce them to tears. And then uh, what's the point? You know, most of the things we talk about in our, our clinic about blood sugar, blood cholesterol, mm-hmm. uh, LP little a, homocysteine. Methotrexate, all those things, we, we have a hack for, and a lot of times more than one. A lot of times we have things that are covered by the insurance, and and we just want to make sure that people realize we're not telling them the numbers so they feel like they've been singled out, but we're we're telling them that okay, this is where they are now. It's kind of like a report card. This is your yeah. report card now, but next quarter you can have a totally different. And I've had I've had uh, we had a guy who was he's thirty six. And his, you know, he was going out drinking with the guys. He's oh yeah, on Saturday and Sunday, I pound them down, doc. And his labs were not looking good. And this guy was a guy who goes to the gym. He's he's in pretty good shape, but his metabolic health was not good. And I, I told him, you know what, these labs are not gonna be good. You're not gonna have a heart attack today, most likely, but in twenty to thirty years, you're not so sure, you know. So so he came back and, and, and made some major changes and his labs, whoa, really got good. And he was really happy about that. And I I said, man, you did a great job. Now let's keep it up. You still have one or two markers here that we got to work with, but you've done a tremendous job. And Now he believes he can make those changes and we're working together as a team. So, yeah. So it's important. It's important. Otherwise, what are you doing? Just telling people they have bad labs. What's the point? I mean, that's not, that's not not medicine.
0: So that's, so what did he, did he cut the booze? Because I feel like alcohol is, People get such mixed messages on alcohol and bottom line, it's not doing you any favors. So where would alcohol rank in your mind? Like for this guy, for example, he just cut out the weekend drinking completely or he just cut it back.
1: Uh, You know, he told me that some days he didn't drink. But again, you're with you're with your guys there. They're all drinking. You know, you ask him to change all his friends. You really have to meet people where they are. If you tell this guy well, you got to go to church on Saturday, I mean, come on. I mean, you have to meet people where they are. So he told me that he, he stopped uh, stacking drinks. So you know what they said. Guys can have two drinks of, of uh, a mixed drink or a few ounces of wine or beer. But uh, again, uh, you know, you can't have nothing from Monday to, to Friday and then Saturday have 14. It just yeah. doesn't work that way. Yeah. So, so uh, we're not always successful, but you know, when we show people their labs, same thing with gluten. You know, oh, doc, I can take anything. Well, a lot of people have bad gluten sensitivity. When they eat a pizza or something, they don't have any bad sensation because their immune system is so deranged they can't mount a response. Right. If you tell right. them stay off gluten for a month, then they ha- then they eat the pizza, then they're all over the place. They Have all sorts of symptoms because they they that month is allow their immune system to 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 repopulate and, and now they had a bad a bad reaction and we'll check either uh, uh, we we have an advanced gluten sensitivity but you can even get you know uh, genetic markers to show if they have a propensity for sure. heaven so so you know there's a little bit of an art to the practice of medicine
0: for sure yeah no and helping people to to see it the right way. Is definitely a big piece of it. So I heard a rumor. As we're going to wind down here, I heard a rumor that maybe you're writing a book. Is that true?
1: Right. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I, I. Well, actually, I'm co-author with Joel Green, who's already a renowned author. Uh, he wrote the Immunity Code.
0: Yeah, we had him on the code, show. He, yeah.
1: Yeah, he, he's amazing. He's a he's a good friend, and he's really, really a, a good person. And. uh, uh, he asked me to help him with, uh, mini coding and obesity being that at a certain level, we're going to get into med- medical issues. And he didn't feel uh, as comfortable as I would with the, uh, you know, the medical part of it, but in terms of the diet and everything else he brings to the table, he's, he's, he's probably one of the top thinkers. I mean, he, he's able to, to, like I said, synthesize material. And we found, if you look at his podcast and you look who's on his podcast, for the most part, the younger people. Uh, men and women who are involved in either bodybuilding or, or, or fitness and um, some of them have chronic illnesses but a lot of them don't whereas this book will be tailored more towards maybe slightly older individuals or individuals with with known pre-existing conditions such as diabetes cholesterol issues uh, pre-diabetes uh, and and uh, and you know uh, reflux sibo and uh, some other medical conditions and that's that's where I bring in my expertise. And together, I think the book will be something, something special. I, it, um, it's just not going to be another book on how to lose weight. Yeah. Those uh, dietary approaches, as you know, are mm-hmm. pretty uh, revolutionary. So
0: I'm looking forward to it also because it's, you know, it's always easy to speak to people who are pretty close to healthy. It's <laughs> quite another thing to talk to a population oh, yeah. of people who desperately want to get better but nar you know they it took him a while to get to that place so i think that i'm really looking forward to seeing that book actually i think it'll be great i know it's going to be a little while you guys are just working on it but uh right yeah i'm looking forward to having you both back on the podcast and talking about it when it's uh when you're ready to share
1: <laughs> that that would be wonderful that would be wonderful uh i mean i think uh, again uh, you can help people a limited number of people in the office you can do things like you're doing you're doing a fantastic service i think your your podcast i've learned so much especially about peptides but also about other things um, and and people uh, people want to know about these things uh, about these things that you mentioned and uh, and and the same with us is, is we realize that if there's over hundred million diabetics there's no way i can see these people in my clinic but can, can uh, a majority or even some of these individuals, if they're, if they're so inclined, get some information on, on their condition so they don't have to suffer like uh, other people have? Yes, of course, and that's, that's our goal.
0: Amazing, yeah, and yeah, get them before they fall off the cliff, right?
1: That's, yeah, that'd be the goal.
0: Yeah, all right, well, that's amazing. Well, Dr. Tortorice, is there anything we did not cover here that you think you'd like to share with the audience?
1: not too much maybe a little bit about alzheimer's there's a type of sure. alzheimer's that's due to uh high blood sugar and it creates inflammatory conditions in the brain but that's probably i guess you'll have to invite me back for a few months Some information I, on that one
0: i guess yeah that'll be the type three <laughs> diabetes conversation <laughs>
1: yes yeah that could that could that go an hour just by itself but i think we we hit everything uh, you did a fantastic job at of uh, uh r- reminding me of things that i wanted to talk about so uh Again, I want to thank you for, uh, for allowing me to talk to your audience. And uh, yeah, you're always so well-informed. So it was a great privilege for me.
0: And Frank, can you tell us how can people find you?
1: So probably the best way is through my website at com. That's uh, D-I-A-B-E-S-I-T-Y-D-O-C.com or through my Instagram or Facebook at Burlingame Functional Medicine there, we have some articles and some, some information that might be useful.
0: Fantastic. So I'll put those links in the show notes for people if they need them. So it's Diabcddoc.com. Thank you so much. I'm, uh, this has been great. Thanks for taking the time. And, um, I look forward to many more fun, informative interviews with
1: you. Thank you.
0: Thanks so much for joining me on this episode of the biohacking superhuman performance podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to leave us a five-star review on iTunes, because that's what helps us to be heard and to be seen. If you'd like to connect with me directly, or if you'd like to leave any comments, or if you have any questions about this episode, please reach out to me directly through my website, mattnidham.com. And of course, if you're not already a member of the Biohacking Superhuman Performance Community on Facebook, that's where you'll find me every day. It's a short application, just answer a couple of questions and you're in and interfacing with other amazing biohackers. Thanks again. And we'll look forward to seeing you on the next episode.